Next, on Lectures in History, Lafayette College professor Robert Wiener teaches a class on the origins of World War II in Europe. He describes how the British and French governments initially saw Soviet Russia as a bigger threat than the fascists in Germany and Italy. He argues that some leaders' reluctance to enter another war led to appeasement efforts with Hitler and military unpreparedness. Glad to see all of you here tonight. We had one burning question before class. Uh, I don't know if the individual has the courage to ask that question. Uh, is that possible? Do you want to do that? Okay. All right. I asked if that picture was you. Uh, well, it, it's part of me. This is Maurice Jacob Wiener, my father. And uh, this lecture is in honor of him. Um, my grandmother, his mother, was functionally illiterate in English, spoke Yiddish, never really learned the language. He graduated third in this class in high school and won a scholarship to Penn and Wharton and law school, where he also boxed and ran track. He was drafted at age 35 when my mom was pregnant, came home, really didn't mind the war. Now, he was a nifty guy, and I think one of the main reasons I'm doing this tonight is because of him. Because he used to have me sit while he shaved every morning, which was quite a scene. And he would quote the Gettysburg Address, or he would quote from Shakespeare. But above all, he would talk about World War II. So I knew about the Battle of, Bul of the Bulge when I was about five years old. I knew the response. I knew the differences in the airplanes. I knew all of that stuff. Uh, and most of all, I had a passion for learning uh, as a result of, uh, of his influence. Every time I brought home a new book of 300 pages, he would usually read it overnight before I could even open it up. Uh, and uh, what I've had the privilege to do for the last 50 years at Lafayette College is what he ought to have done himself, although one did not do those things uh, 70 years ago. Uh, if you were a new immigrant uh, in the United States. People who taught and did research at major colleges and universities were largely from the old elites, and that was even partly true when I came here uh, in 1969. So uh, tonight we're going to be continuing our discussion of Europe uh, in this case, in the 1930s, and I know that a number of you did get here in the ice to see the films uh, from the Lawrence Reese collection on the Nazis. And given what you've been doing each week and given the journals I'm going to give back to you later tonight uh, and uh, the level of their quality... Uh, I know you're ready for tonight's lecture also, and you can interrupt and ask questions, and we'll have plenty of time also for our normal process and questions afterwards. And because of that, um, I'm going to handle the topic um, somewhat differently than is normally done, uh, more in a sort of French pattern 
The French, uh, in the beginning, the French diplo diplomatic scholars often study les forces profondes, the underlying structures of society, the deep forces that set the context for developments in any particular age. And if diplomacy in the 1930s uh, is a story of a perfect storm, it is largely because of those underlying structures. So I'm going to deal with them rather analytically and then stop along the way and give you some additional detail with respect to crises uh, in the way that Kershaw does in his book. Now, I brought some of my toys along, as I usually do. Um, you don't have to buy this uh, and read all of it immediately, but we're really lucky to have John Merriman's A History of Modern Europe. This is a new edition, 2018, and Merriman received the Award for Lifetime Achievement from the American Historical Association last year. Um, and I may quote from that once today. And we have another Tory, Bernard Wasserstein, an author of about 10, 12 books or so. We may be reading this, or the second part of it, as our final book. Uh, I got into it enough to realize that it's a brilliant read, just like Ian Kershaw's materials, and it's a worthy follow-up from Ian Kershaw's work. So diplomacy in the 1930s, and I'm going to give you a whole series of categories of, of things and, uh, and talk about them, not in any particular order of more important or less important, but they are all interacting together. So uh, in foreign policy, the following general themes should be kept in mind for the 1930s. Domestic and international events were inextricably combined. And the Great Depression casts a shadow over everything and over so many of the choices that people made. It doesn't mean they couldn't have made other choices. They could have made other choices. Human agency during this decade is extremely important. Just look at the career of Adolf Hitler and the choices he made in the middle of the Depression. But many other political leaders faced with the Depression couldn't make radical or clear decisions because the Depression touched everything that they thought about. Because of the Great Depression, um, there was a tremendous amount of domestic instability all over. And that domestic instability uh, also came from the enduring impact of the Russian Revolution, the fear of socialism, and even more, the fear of communism all over Europe, uh, 
not just in the neighbor states to the Soviet Union, but all the way to the West, indeed, all the way to the United States, because the Soviets had an international communist organization, the Comintern, that sent agents all over the world to find out what was going on, to encourage domestic radicalism, uh, and uh, it was like the CIA, in a sense, uh, as an international organization. Uh, although the functions were somewhat different, uh, but they were real, uh, even though often we over-exaggerated them. So that also created a lot of domestic radicalization, fragmentation, a little bit like what we experience today in the sense of people toward one another, in the sense of politicians toward one another, uh, in the difficulty of working together, in the assumptions people had, in the fears they had, in the suspicions they had, in the stereotypes they had. So let me give you just an example of how all of that might work out in a particular crisis. Um, in March of 1936, Hitler remilitarized the Rhineland, the borderland between France and Germany that was supposed to be demilitarized as a result of the Treaty of Versailles but also as a result of the 1925 Treaty of Locarno that Germany had willingly agreed to. Had that land remained demilitarized, that would mean that the French would have had access to 50 miles of demilitarized German territory should a conflict take place. It was an extremely, extremely important development and the French responded very, very poorly to it. One reason was the depression. The military indicated that in order to be sure that they would prevail over the Germans if they went into the Rhineland and attacked, they needed to have a general mobilization, a general mobilization in the middle of a depression. But it would not only have been a general mobilization in the middle of a depression, it occurred when, in fact, there was a cabinet change in process. France had a government, but it was a caretaker government, and that happened a number of times. It was a disastrous decision. Uh, we'll go into it a little more later. But the same thing occurred in March of 1938 when the Germans annexed Austria, the so-called Anschluss, the annexation of Austria by Germany, adding another 8, 9 million people uh, to the Reich. France, again, had a caretaker government which means it did not have full national support. In that particular kind of structure, it's very, very difficult to make uh, choices. And there were near civil wars in many of the countries of Europe, 
and states were afraid of doing anything that could lead to a civil war or that could lead to an international conflict. Both of those things are functioning at the same time constantly. In order to survive, in fact, most states used some kind of emergency decrees, including states even like Belgium or like France during the Popular Front. Usually they were for short periods of time. And uh, that was very, very difficult as well. The leader of the Popular Front, Leon Blum, in order to carry out further social reforms, asked for emergency decree power over the economy from the French Senate. Sort of like what has been happening in the United States recently. Who has the power to govern in extra-constitutional ways? And the French Senate refused him the power because he was a socialist. The next government is more moderate, and they're given the power to reform the economy further. Now, I'm going to talk about this at greater length in a minute, but obviously in this kind of environment, with the continued polarization, the continued unemployment, the continued domestic instability, the dictators of any kind have an easier time really making decisions and getting things done than liberal democratic leaders who are always looking over their shoulders to see what are the political implications of any decision that they might make. Globally, and you can't study Europe without studying the globe either. Um, globally, the world was divided between the haves and the have-not states. With the haves trying to keep what they had, and the biggest of the haves are Britain and France, and also the United States, and the have-not states trying to revise the situation uh, to get more. Well, you might be surprised by some of the states that were revisionist. Germany obviously is revisionist. It wants to get rid of the Treaty of Versailles. But Italy is also revisionist, not content with what it had. Hungary is revisionist, not content with what it had. Japan is somewhat revisionist, although it did very well in World War I. But Japan also is going through its depression, getting worse by the year, leading uh, to the uh, fall of the closest thing the Japanese had ever had in the 1920s of a liberal constitutional government by the early 1930s. It was a militarily dominated government in which in many cases the military undertakes external aggression even without any 
civilian control whatsoever, as the Japanese did in Manchuria in 1932. Russia was somewhat revisionist, uh, although it was far more defensive uh, than aggressive. The Soviets expected sooner or later that the Western capitalist powers would find a way to attack them. And the West feared that somehow the Soviets would be successful in trying to undermine our systems of government as well. Each stereotyped the other and forgot to look at the map. Okay, all the times we've talked about the impact of geography. Uh, And this is extremely, extremely important. The powers were divided, as I implied, constitutionally as well as ideologically. So constitutionally, what form of a government do you happen to have? In many, many cases, that was less important than the ideological divisions. Uh, Conservatives in England, for example, had no difficulty with forms of dictatorship in other countries, as long as those dictatorships were not hostile to the interests of the British Empire. And here again... The British Empire was overextended and had interests all over the globe. And you would think that overwhelmingly the first and only thing on their mind would be the growing power on the continent of Adolf Hitler. But their military spent almost as much time, especially until the late 1930s, uh, fearing the expansion of the Japanese and their capacity to undermine the British Empire in Asia. So they were overextended, especially during the Depression, and their vision was divided. And areas of their empire were trying to rebel and gain more autonomy or even independence. The French faced the same kind of problem on a less intense Level. There were colonial rebellions. The French were deeply concerned about that, but the British identity was so associated with empire, and even defense was associated with empire because of the role the empire had played in World War I, especially Australia, New Zealand, Canada. And these independent countries no longer wanted to be part of going to war again uh, in Europe. Yes? Uh, Sure. So uh, was there any, like, uh, events uh, going on throughout the war war, uh, at that time that triggered the the rise up of the, uh, the, like, the small country want to be independent from those colonies. Oh, absolutely. Many, many. Just just name the geographical area and you're going to get things that were important. Uh, And one of the other things that shadows this whole time period, which I'm going to deal with later, is, of course, the lasting impact, the enduring impact of World War I. Okay? 
so many tens of thousands of native soldiers come to Europe, serve in the Allied armies, expect to be compensated for their loyalty in some way, in the same way as African Americans in the United States, risking their lives, giving their lives, and they go home and nothing's changed. And after things settle down a bit, it's as though they didn't do anything at all when they know they risked their lives. Uh, beside that, just the act of the bloodbath of Europe, the genocidal nature of World War I led people all over the world to question what many of them had accepted as the superiority of European culture. If this is a superior culture, what is it doing? So that undermines the whole nature of European empire as well. Uh, and it undermines the nature of people's attitudes toward life as well, toward defense or toward offense as well. And again, the dictatorships are far more able to canalize those feelings and act upon them. So it's important to recognize that the German people supported Adolf Hitler the most when he bought, brought home gains with peace, such as after the Munich crisis in September of 1938. Now, yes, when he went into Poland and slaughtered the Poles in six weeks, they loved it also, even though, even though there were losses involved, larger losses than most people recognized. The Poles fought bravely, but still, that was, a, that was a gain after Hitler conquers France in, in the summer of June of 1940. Of course, there's a tremendous uh, wellspring of German pride. But basically, where they felt most proud and happy and secure is when Hitler was destroying the Treaty of Versailles step by step by step peacefully, and after every single event, he said, that's my last uh, concession that I need, uh, uh, especially after the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia in September 1938. Uh, now let's talk about peace. He always offered the possibility of peace, especially in the West, and he always took the position that he was the defender of Western Christian civilization against soulless, atheistic Bolshevism, the scourge of all peoples. Uh, so this, this function in that manner as well. Any other questions while, while we've stopped? Uh, if you want, I mean, your call. Okay. So... Um, the powers are divided this way, um, and fascism, interestingly, which we come to consider uh, in some ways the greatest of all evil, uh, later uh, was among the European elites, especially in the West, considered less pernicious and dangerous than communism. Because in the fascist countries, even in National Socialist Germany, if you were not one of the designated out groups, if you didn't rebel, if you disagreed but kept your mouth shut, um, 
life went on. Uh, and in some ways, conditions even improved to the majority of people, and overwhelmingly, property was respected. People's right to go to church was respected, even though both Italy and Germany were undermining the meaning of, of Christianity from the get-go, signing agreements with the papacy, and then going on their own way, doing what they wanted to propagandize their populations, especially the youth, male and female, even. But they were less of a threat, even in the case of the United States. Mussolini, until he attacked Ethiopia in October of 1936, was kind of thought of as a good old boy. Uh, and Italian-Americans were pretty proud, for the most part, of what he had accomplished because he brought back pride to the Italian people who always had a sense of that, feeling in World War I that they didn't get their fair share and that their armies didn't do well, uh, and they were an immigrant population also that needed uh, reinforcement, just as I do with my cane, although I'm doing all right for now. So, Russia was um, consigned as the ultimate enemy in the minds of almost every power in the West uh, in a structure that reminds me of the Thirty Years' War of the 17th century where Protestants killed Catholics and Catholics killed Protestants in ultimate acts of slaughter, Jews caught in the middle. Uh, there, after a while, they realized that this is mindless and can't continue, but it was a while that took 100 years. And if you look at the 20th century, it also took about 100 years to get through all of this. But again, how did France survive in World War I? What was the most important thing that allowed France to survive in World War I? Yeah, Lyme. Uh, it's the alliance with Russia. It's the Russian alliance which, which forces the, uh, the German army to divide its forces. And the second would be the uh, impact of the Brits, but the Russians in the beginning even more so, right? Well, the, the, it hadn't changed. Here's Russia still. Now, liberal, pragmatic French diplomats understood that so much that they even formed a, a non-aggression pact with the Russians uh, in 1935, which is ratified by the French chamber in February of 1936. In fact, Hitler used that as the excuse to remilitarize the Rhineland. Uh, perfect for the Brits. They loved it. Look, they are making an alliance with the Bolsheviks, the Judeo-Bolsheviks. This is crazy, he says. We are the defenders of the West. We must be able to defend ourselves, and that's why we have to remilitarize the Rhineland. And the French go to the Brits and talk about it, and the Brits say, we don't want any part of this. Don't 
go further with this or you cannot count on us. So they actually have a military pact that they do nothing to strengthen uh, for three whole years while Hitler is making his gains all across Central Europe. The French and the Russian military never gets together until finally after Germany um, invades Prague in March of 1939, taking for the first time non-German territory and therefore making it clear that his policy is not just a policy of Germanic expansion, pan-Germanism, but of domination of Europe. But meanwhile, the Russians are out in the cold. And when the French and the British finally begin to negotiate with him, they do so in such a dithering and incompetent way that the Russians can no longer take them seriously. And in fact, until that time, the Russian foreign minister who believed in collective action against Hitler didn't trust the capitalist countries, but against something like Hitler, you got to unite. His name was Maxim Litvinov. He was Jewish. Stalin fires him at that point when he decides to substitute anything with the West with a temporary alliance with Germany, which approaches him and can offer him more. So uh, Molotov, Molotov becomes the Russian foreign minister because he can negotiate with the Germans. And then you get this bombshell of a surprise in August of 1939 of the Nazi-Soviet pact. That's the green light for war. The British and French conservatives cannot swallow or stomach a real agreement with Russia and act upon it. But Hitler can because he has no intention of continuing it and he'll break it whenever he wants. The British and the French forgot whatever partial lessons of history they should have learned. They forgot how to read a map. The Russians had an alliance with the Czechs. They were committed to helping to protect the Czechs if the French engaged. Nobody wanted to be a dupe of the other powers. The Russians feared that all the West wanted is for them to fight Germany while they sit back and enjoy the two destroying each other. And there was enough evidence of that to make that a reality in someone's mind and not just a fantasy, even though what the British and French really wanted is a peaceful settlement of everything and not a war between Russia and Germany, which could have gotten out of control uh, and uh, led to their being brought in itself. In terms of how deeply uh, people thought about this, the head of the Polish army in 1939, Smidley Rids, or Rids Smidley, and it can be done either way, um, said, 
If defeated by Germany, we lose our honor. If defeated by Russia, we lose our soul. Okay? So they were totally unwilling to allow Russian soldiers to pass through Poland to go to be able to fight Germany because they were afraid they would never leave. And indeed, after the war, they didn't leave for a long time, right? Uh, but the British and the French did not press the Poles to make that agreement with the Russians, even though that's the only way the Soviet power could have been manifested against Germany in the beginning of, of the war. And the Germans were willing to pay off graciously and greatly, giving Russia control of half of Poland and most of the Baltic states except Lithuania. And in return, the Russians paid back with all kinds of supplies and materiel and goodwill for the next two years until Hitler attacked the Soviet Union, his fatal mistake, in June of 1941. Another example of how this ideological struggle uh, was so deeply important in undermining the capability of the states to function in a reasonable way, uh, creating what I call a perfect storm. You know that the Spanish Civil War broke out in July of 1936. It lasted for three years. It was covered in the newspapers and newsreels. Daily you could read about it. It was a prelude in its ideology to the war that would occur three years later between Germany and the rest of Europe. So you would think that the British and the French would want to maintain the power and the existence of the legal republic, even though the republic was a little bit more radical than they would normally have countenanced. The powers signed the non-intervention non treaty in November of 1936, which Hitler and Mussolini, now drawn together, violated radically. The Spanish Civil War was um, a place where Germany experienced the use of its army and learned from it. The Spanish Civil War was a place where they learned dive bombing tactics and how effective they could be. Destruction of civilian populations, use of hundreds of planes, training of pilots, supply, materiel, and everything else. Their army ended being far more capable and far stronger, and they would take those lessons later into World War II. The Soviets matched them on some level, but not too much. And they came, because of that, to control the forces of the Republic uh, in Spain, and it was an example, again, of the pathetic um, 
infighting between various parties on the left. The communists came to dominate over the anarchists and other socialist groups because Russia was giving them weapons and money and training and soldiers and tanks, just as Italy and Germany did, although Germany did it, and even Italy did it, in far greater quantities. But that undermined the domestic situation all over Europe, and especially in Britain and France. It was like a running sore. The British elites favored Franco. Whether he was fascist or just a reactionary dictator, he was aligned with the church and they favored Franco. The French elites favored Franco. Leon Blum, who we've talked about and whose speech you may have read about at the Congress of Tours, moderate socialist leader of the Popular Front government in France at that time, has a blockage of guilt in his gut because he's watching with open eyes the right wing and fascists defeating Republican forces, and all he can do is mildly support the Republican forces for a while. Why? Because the British have said to him, do not get involved in this mess. You're on your own if you do. But equally so, France was so divided ideologically that the fear was that if the French sent large amounts of equipment on the one hand, it could lead to a war with Germany, but on the other hand, it could have led to a civil war in France. And that was a possibility people took very, very seriously. French people in the 1930s came to hate and fear each other. Bloom was dragged out of his vehicle and beaten to an inch of his life and sent to the hospital by radical right-wing forces when he found his way at the wrong place at the wrong time. And the right-wing radical forces all said, good for him. He got what he deserved. It was appalling. But it happened. And that's because, again, of that ideological radicalization. So the world itself was an unstable place, and especially in Britain and France, France much more than Britain, although Britain struggled to uh, defend its unwieldy empire, and France struggled just to hold together the republic during the depths of the Depression. But when did World War II actually begin? And what was it anyway? Well, let's see. I ran across this in John Merriman. John's about six foot four, little guy. Brilliant. How many people do you think died during the Japanese attack on China? Anyone have any idea? 
We're talking about a world war now, right? Maybe it's 15 million. 15 million. 50? Yeah. 30. 30 million people died in the Japanese war against China, which began in 1932, leading Japan to leave the League of Nations. The Western powers all protested and did, did nothing. The League of Nations was basically dead after that point, although Italy put the final straw in it in 1935 when they attacked Ethiopia. So the League had no respect and no power. And then in 1937, Japan went into a full-scale war against China leading to this. Why don't we know it? Why isn't it in most of our books? It's not in either of the other texts, nothing like that. Here's a new book coming out in the, in the spring, The Second World Wars, plural. Okay? So what we're really talking about in greater detail today is the origins of the Second World War in Europe. But maybe the Second World War began in 1932 in Manchuria. Maybe it began in 1935 when Italy attacked Ethiopia. Maybe it really began, and I think you have to consider this very seriously, uh, in 1937 when Japan uh, attacked China. Uh, and that really, really caused a great threat to all the colonial powers in Asia, including very, very much the United States, which was trying to restrain Japan with various kinds of embargo, and the Jap Japanese military made the choice to run the gauntlet. They saw themselves as the racially superior people of Asia, in the same way as the Germans did in, in Europe, uh, and militarily superior, and uh, did not think that we would have the guts and the tenacity to really, really stop them militarily. And that's why they took the risks that finally led to their radical destruction uh, and uh, also uh, to our entrance into World War II against Germany because Hitler declared war on the United States after Japan um, attacked the United States before we even were ready to declare war on Germany. So the world globally is deeply out of whack and disjointed. Another example, Italy and Germany, well, ideologically, aren't they more alike? But historically, the Italians didn't like the Germans very much. They got smashed by them in World War I, and the Germans didn't respect the Italians at all. Hitler happened to respect Mussolini, the elder fascist state's person. But until 1935, Italy was a more consistent, hardcore opponent of German expansion than either Britain or France. And she did this by trying to protect the independence of Austria. So there would be space between Italy and Germany. Would you want Germany on your border? But at the same time, Mussolini had big eyes for empire. And he was jealous of what Hitler was doing, and he was jealous of the British Empire, and he was jealous of the French Empire, and he wanted equivalent status for himself and for the Italian people. 
So when he goes into Ethiopia, thinking, well, the British and French have done nothing about German expansionism, why should they oppose what I'm doing? He uses airplanes. He uses poison gas against people with primitive weapons. It's on newsreels. It turns the stomach of people in Britain and France. Yes, you can say they were somewhat hypocritical. They were doing some of the same to their own people in their colonies, right? But it turns their stomach, uh, and they start embargoing certain things. Italy gets extremely upset. They leave the League of Nations, and it pushes Mussolini toward Hitler. And the Spanish Civil War finalizes that. So in 1938, when Hitler wants to move on Austria, he now is fairly certain Italy will allow it. In 1934, when there was an assassination of an Austrian dictator by National Socialists, Mussolini mobilized his army, and Hitler backed away. By 1938, they are so close that Mussolini basically says, it's okay. And Hitler says to Ciano, Mussolini's son-in-law, whom Mussolini later executed, he says, tell the deuce, I will never forget it. Never, never, never. That was the key to Austria. Now, once he's annexed Austria, look at poor Czechoslovakia in the middle of the vice. Right? Right in the middle of the vice. In the middle of all of this, the British and the French have different conceptions of the impact of the war, the nature of foreign policy, the nature of what should be done, the meaning of the Treaty of Versailles and the Locarno Treaty, and even the role of Germany in Europe. At least until 1936, France was somewhat more independent, and it attempted to have an all-Europe policy to stay in line with the states on the east of Germany in some ways to be able to cut Germany's freedom of movement. So to the French, the existence and independence of the Czech state with whom they had an alliance was very important. And the Soviets also had an alliance as I mentioned before, with the Czechs. The French also had alliances with the Yugoslavians and the Romanians. But the British didn't view that as significant. They had a Western European sense of defense. England's defense begins on the Rhine, France itself. The British were not against the revision of the portions of the Treaty of Versailles that were abhorrent to Germany. In some cases, they were more sympathetic to the Germans 
who were viewed as having been mistreated at Versailles and not guilty of starting World War I alone and jealous in some cases and angry at the French small-mindedness and attachment to legalities. The British elites who actually came into government, Stanley Baldwin and Neville Chamberlain, believed in appeasement as a policy. Now, it has come to have a horrendous meaning after World War II. Appeasement equals Munich. Munich equals appeasement. And sometimes that takes on a stereotype and ideology and a life of its own that can be blinding against the needs of a particular time period. Baldwin's sense of appeasement was passive. You may have read one of the speeches he gave in which in 1932 he says, the bomber will always get through. Well, how about that for stiffening up your spine? The bomber will always get through. If we have another war, London's going to be bombed. We may win the war, but London's going to be bombed, right? Industrial England is going to be bombed, no matter what we do. Well, if you really believe that, I would think you would, despite the Depression, enlarge your Air Force, but they didn't make that decision to radically do it until very, very late. So as late as 1938, Germany was spending more on military expansion than both Britain and France together. What's in your head? Now, passive appeasement goes basically like this. Hitler militarizes the Rhineland. Well, it's something we knew would happen, right? Hitler announces that earlier in 1935 that Germany has an air force and that it's going to build an army of 500,000 men. Well, the Treaty of Versailles limited it to 100,000, 500. That's a lot of people. But the French army was that large. So Hitler said, basically... We don't need 500,000 men of the French disarmed, but the French wouldn't disarm. And besides, we need that army to protect ourselves against the Soviets, especially now that France has reached an alliance with the Soviets. And it makes some sense as long as you do not remember what the person is doing domestically to his own people. Here's one of my favorite documents. Not really. It's a sickening document. David Lloyd George, the great war leader of the World War I for Britain, goes to see Hitler in November of 1936, and he has a very, very nice time with him. Hitler knew how to schmooze. Hitler knew how to treat older people. When Chamberlain would go see Hitler in 1938... Chamberlain ran down the steps, uh, Hitler ran down the steps to Chamberlain and he said, oh, you're older than I am. I should have gone to see you. I'm so, so, I mean, he knew how to play, how to play it. So Lloyd George says, whatever one may think of his methods, 
and they are certainly not the methods of a parliamentary country, there can be no doubt that he has achieved a marvelous transformation in the spirit of the people, in their attitude toward each other and their social and economic outlook. And later he says, the Germans will resist to the death every invader of their own country, but they have no longer the desire themselves to invade any other land. This is 1936. They've broken the military clauses of Versailles. They have introduced the Nuremberg racial laws in 1936. The prisons and concentration camps are full of political appointments, and people are running to leave Germany who are not capable or willing to be part of a national socialist state. They intervene in the Rhineland in 1936, and they send tanks and planes and soldiers to Spain. Is this part of the wonderful public spirit that had been encouraged in Germany? How can you possibly separate what is going on in Germany internally from what Germany is doing externally? The whole sense of the society was being militarized. And yet, David Lloyd George, a brilliant statesman, was taken in. Baldwin retires of May of 1937, and he is replaced by Neville Chamberlain. He doesn't believe in passive resistance. Chamberlain believes in active appeasement. It's not enough to wait until the dictator moves and then try to soften up the impact of it and prevent a war. You want to anticipate what he may be doing. So you send Lord Halifax, the head of your council, to talk to Hitler in 1937, and Halifax returns with the same ideas of Lloyd George, Germany does not want war. I understand Hitler. You can bet on it. That's not what they want. They just want the legitimacy of getting back the things that were taken away from them after World War I, and we can work with these people. Franklin Roosevelt, in 1938, offers to be part of an international conference to talk to the dictators directly and see what they have in mind publicly. Make him fess up. And Chamberlain says, I don't want to be any part. Get that man out of here. We don't need American intervention. This is 1938. We don't need American help because they're going to mess it up. I know what my policy is. And I'm going to carry it out, and I believe in it. And I'm going to keep out of power people who disagree with me, like Winston Churchill, who just want to rearm and take the risk of going to war. So Chamberlain goes to Munich, finally, after the third meeting, as part of the third meeting with Hitler in the fall of 1938 over the Czech crisis, 
And he comes back believing that Hitler really won't go any further once he gets the Sudetenland in western Czechoslovakia where the majority of people are German. Hitler says, I have no further territorial demands. Daladier, the French prime minister, is sick to his stomach. The French had a treaty with the Czechs. The Czechs were the only democratic state left in all of Central Europe. Chamberlain says they're a far away country and a people of which we know very little. Why should we take risks on their behalf? Deladier knows that what they've done is cut the throat of an ally willing to fight and toss them into Hitler's hand. Deladier just doesn't think France is ready especially since Britain will not support active opposition to um, Hitler at that time. Chamberlain comes home, gets out of the airport, comes down the steps, and holds up a piece of paper literally, and he says, I believe it's peace with honor. I believe it's peace in our time. Deladier goes home. And he looks at the crowds waiting in Le Bourget Airport, and he discusses whether or not they should go somewhere else because they're afraid the crowd might lynch them for their betrayal of an ally. When they land, the crowds are joyous. And the Ladier says to the person next to him, Mais ces gens sont fous, but these people are mad. Deladier goes home, and his son said, why didn't you fight? I could have fought. And his father says, you will fight, and it will be a long fight. But we just weren't ready yet. The cardinal archbishop of Paris refuses to ring the church bells in honor of Deladier's return. And he's castigated by the papacy for not doing so. So you can see how this is playing out. So what about the only other power that really could have done something serious in all of this that we talk about from time to time? Our country. My first college, um, my second college research paper was on the Rhineland crisis. I really wanted to write my PhD on it, but when that time came, somebody else had just published a book on it. But I did some very deep research on the Rhineland crisis when I was your age. And um, the point was that the French were simply unwilling, unable to conceive deeply about what they had gotten them into. In some ways, there was a prelude to this. 
And that prelude was French military philosophy after World War I, and it centered around the building of the Maginot Line in itself in the early 1930s. Not a bad idea, except it cost a fortune. And so most of their funds went into the Maginot Line. A bulwark, a defensive bulwark. Because what they learned in World War I was that more people died when they attacked than when they defended. And since the French had lost so many people, they couldn't afford to attack anymore. Can you win a basketball game or a football game with a great defense if you're not willing to attack? If you're not willing to go to the rim? Can you win a tennis game just waiting and standing behind the line? That's basic common sense. But the total military elite with the exception, really, of one very important person, believed that that had to be the way France protected itself in the future. But France also had all these alliances on Germany's borders. How can you protect the French, the, the Czechs, or the Serbs, if you only have a defensive military posture? It means that your alliances are nonsense. Nonsense. So there were a couple of people in France who realized this. And the person who most realized it was named de Gaulle, Charles de Gaulle. In 1934, he wrote a book. He dedicated it to the most famous and loved military leader in France at that time, his teacher, Marshal Pétain. Remember? Verdun dedicated it to him. And it's called Vers l'armée métier, toward a professional army. And what he basically talked about in this book is the need for mobile tank units to function independently. That's what the Germans were learning in the Spanish Civil War, and that's what the Germans were learning when they read de Gaulle's book and when they read books written by British generals as well. So there is a French leader who takes an interest in de Gaulle. And his name is Paul Renault. Uh, you've heard about him a couple of times. And he is the last prime minister before Marshal Pétain comes into power in the spring of 1940 and sues for peace with Germany. Renault is kind of like Churchill, but not as strong, not as dynamic, conservative, respected by almost everybody, not a radical conservative, a good, hard, nationalist conservative, economic conservative, long-term politician, respected. So they take de Gaulle's ideas into the Chamber of Deputies in 1934. And the idea is that, of course, the Maginot Line has to be maintained. It's important. As part of a military philosophy, it's very, very significant and brilliant. Brilliant feat, like the Eiffel Tower, right? But not sufficient. An army has to be able to attack as well as to defend. So the whole military elite goes against 
de Gaulle and Reynaud's ideas and the Minister of Defense in the debates in 1935 gets up and says, when we have spent so many millions on our fortifications, who would believe us foolish enough to sally out in front of them in search of heaven knows what adventure? Cool. Is that a pacifist talking or is it a general? And they do to de Gaulle in France what the British did to Churchill. Make him an outsider, keep him out of power. They do nothing. A year and a half later, if they had had part of what de Gaulle had wanted, they wouldn't have needed general mobilization to put the Germans out of the Rhineland. And the Germans would later use these ideas in their attacks on Poland and then on France. It's not that they didn't have alternatives placed in front of them, but they did not accept these alternatives. Finally, we have March of 1939. Hitler goes into the rest of Czechoslovakia. Bernard Wasserstein really gets upset. He says, after Hitler took most of the rest of Czechoslovakia, the maggots came out. What's a maggot? And when do maggots come out? Maybe this is too much on his part, but the maggots mm. are the Poles and Hungarians. Hitler uses them also to say it's not just us against Czechoslovakia, which is a bastard state, never should have existed. But the Poles and the Hungarians take little pieces of Czechoslovakia also. Meaning then that they are now on the Germans' borders. Well, they would have been there anyway if the Germans had kept everything. But when you destabilize the state of Czechoslovakia, pushing Germany further eastward, do you really believe that it will have no effect on you in Hungary or in Poland? This was the moment when the reality of Hitler's lies became blatantly obvious to everyone because in that part of Czechoslovakia he attacked in 1939, there were almost no ethnic Germans. And that's when even Chamberlain said, my God, the guy's been lying to me all the time. How could he do that? How dare he do that? And that's when the bulk of the population, even in France and even in Great Britain, come to take the position, Dayenu, in Hebrew, enough is enough. No more. 
you've just broken your word. Everything you have been saying has been based on fallacious assumptions. You are not a pan-German. You are the coming Attila. You want to dominate all of Europe. And meanwhile, while the British and the French are dilly-dallying with their rearmament slowly, from 1936 on, Hitler is pushing massive rearmament. And in 1937, he tells the generals, within the next couple of years, we're going to war. So prepare yourselves. Because there is going to be a war soon. If a civil war breaks out in France, that's the time to go. If a civil war breaks out somewhere else, that's the time to attack. If Japanese, do, if the Japanese do something destabilizing, that's the time to march. And it has to happen because I don't think I'm going to live for more than another 10 years. It has to happen while I'm still alive. And the generals get the picture. It's not what most of them wanted, not even the National Socialist generals. But every single time he took a risk, and they said, don't do it. And even some of his National Socialist advisors said, don't do that. That's too risky. Every time he took a risk, it worked. It worked. Hitler said after the Rhineland crisis, the 48 hours after the Rhineland crisis were the most terrifying times in my life. If the French had moved on us, we would have had to retreat with our tails between our legs. But the French didn't move forward because de Gaulle's tanks weren't there. And as late as 1939, Germany was still building more than both France and Britain combined. In all of this, the single most important denominator is that the British and the French knew only what they did not want. And there you see the massive trauma of World War I viscerally invading the mentality and the common sense of people who were ordinarily fairly capable people. Yes, the French leadership in the 30s was not great. Other than the Gaulle or maybe Renault, the last great one was Louis Bartou, who was assassinated in 1934. So even accident has a role. The person assassinating him was king, killing the king of Yugoslavia. Bartu was sitting next to him, right? One of the accidents of history. He's gone. I mean, suppose somebody had assassinated Hitler. Would, that would have changed things greatly. So the French knew, and the British knew, only what they didn't want because they were traumatized culturally and psychologically, mentally, by the impact of World War I. Most Germans felt the same way. Most Italians actually felt the same way. But there were strong minorities in their countries who felt differently, 
For Adolf Hitler, World War I was the peak experience of his life. It gave meaning to his life. He believed it was a natural part of the state of nature, just like General von Bernhardi in 1911 in his book, Germany and the Next War, in which he said, I must try to prove to you that war is not only necessary, but essential for cultural advancement. War is essential to the species improving itself. Hitler believed in that, but in totally racial terms. A combination of race and space. And he was willing to risk everything on behalf of that ideological belief. A racial empire dominating Europe in which each race had its place and Germany was on top of the heap. And there was a subordinate place for every other group except the Jews who had to be removed. And if removal wasn't possible, then murder was possible. Slobs made great workers. Sometimes they didn't need to read and write. They didn't need teachers. They certainly didn't need priests. They didn't need culture. They didn't need music. They didn't need art. They needed to work for Germans. And a lot of it he was even inspired to from reading about the history of the United States. We know more about that now. Because for some people in the United States, that was the vision. And for some people in the United States, that still is the vision. The impact of World War I dominating this whole period. Great Britain is not known historically or stupidity in diplomacy. Yeah, they often start late and have to make up and they start to lose in the wars and then they dig in step by step, they crawl out, they persevere, and they win. But usually the Brits are able to get lots of other people to fight for them for payment, historically. Not after World War I. Appeasement. The French have a glorious history of military success. We don't think about that as Americans because, you know, most of our lives they just haven't been very strong. But their history was 200 years of dominating Europe militarily, of producing great generals, thoughtful generals, brilliant generals. Well, in 1940, a French resistor, Marc Bloch, before he was tortured to death, wrote a book called Strange Defeat in which he criticized every group in France. But the bottom criticism was the French defeat was a mental defeat. Just like in 1870, the Germans were smarter. Every group in France did what it should not have been doing during the entire time period, and just couldn't come together. Even though we had the lead, it's all of our mistakes 
But the greatest mistakes are the elites, the economic elites, and the military elites, because they're the ones who had the power, and they're the ones who could have changed the course of history. They are the ones who made the decisions. That's the perfect storm of France, in which the only person who has real ideas that make some sense is ostracized and pushed aside and then tried and hung in effigy because he left France and his leading people in Britain, de Gaulle, became a traitor to the Paytanist Vichy government. And the British, they did not face deeply severe internal dislocation on the level of the French. Why didn't they rearm them? Their industrial capacity in the beginning was greater than the German industrial capacity. Why didn't they rearm? By 1940, they were producing as much or more than the Germans because they put women in the factories. Hitler didn't put women in the factories until the very end of the war. What they used later is more slave labor, which caused dislocation. Why didn't they produce the planes and the tanks that were needed? Because to produce it is to give voice to the fact that a war might take place. And that's where Camus comes in in this course, the reading of Camus. And what we learn from it on some level, although we'll mess up again probably, is in politics, in military affairs, in life in general, when there is a plague, you need to name it. You need to recognize it. If you name it, and if you recognize it, you may be able to rationally think, what do you have to do next? But if they had named this, if they had named this, what does that mean? They would have had to have accepted a process of getting ready and going to war before they themselves were attacked. And they just didn't have the stomach for it. This gave Adolf Hitler an incredible advantage. He and the Soviets could choose the time and the place and the British and the French basically would simply wait and then respond. But this is also incredible because while they were waiting for Germany to attack, the French military was considering how to aid the Finns against the Bolsheviks. Why would you want to aid the Finns against the Bolsheviks when Germany's right next to you. And that's part of the ideological confusion. Confusion. Fear. Confusion. Criminal negligence of the highest kind on the part of people who had plenty of reason to fear, but who really should have known better. And the pace price they paid and the price all of us paid for their stupidity and mistakes and lack of courage and lack of foresight 
was great indeed and still is part of the world that we live in. Thank you for your attention, and we'll have more questions later. Thank you. You can watch Lectures in History every weekend on American History TV. We take you inside college classrooms to learn about topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9-11. That's Saturday at 8 p.m. and midnight Eastern on C-SPAN 3.